Well, the first one we already have spoken about quite at length here, but it's the decentralization is one, but then I think also the personalization of the educational experience. Obviously, and you've seen this move to uh, a lot more personalized experiences, live time-bound courses. So without question, that's one, just the personalization. My name is Ish Bade, and I'm the founder and CEO of Virtually. And I'm Will Mannon. I'm course director at Forte Academy. And this is Reshaping Education, where we discuss the future of education, including online courses, boot camps, and how the internet is changing how we learn. All right, back for more fun. Will, round three, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good, ready for the final chapter of our history of online education. I'm really excited for this one. Yeah, the epic saga. It's been an adventure. And and listeners, thank you for sticking with us. I mean, it's been three hours of us going really into the nitty gritty. And if you've made it this far, you must geek out about education as much as Will and I do. And just to recap, people who might be just joining us for this kind of third episode, definitely li- recommend you going back and listening to those first two episodes. They were, they were just really fun. And the first episode was really about Education 1.0. And it was the storyline from everything from YouTube all the way up to 2015 when we had Masterclass and just talking about uh, the accessibility that online education introduced. And then the second episode was all about what we call online education 2.0, which has all really been about outcomes. And would would love to have you talk about where we left off and what's next in the timeline. 100%. So we were talking about cohort-based courses. And specifically, I went on a bit of a look at the courses that I work on specifically, Rite of Passage, Building a Second Brain. We talked about Tiago's founding story with some other courses and then Building a Second Brain and how we got to now on that front. Now, I know we want to pivot and talk about another group that is putting together a whole institution, a fleet of cohort-based courses on deck. So we can touch on that. We can talk about uh, a company that has recently been founded to serve cohort-based course creators with both technology and services, Maven. And I know you want to touch on bootcamp. So I think that's our roadmap. And then we'll try to tie it together at the end with a couple overarching themes. Amazing. Yeah, I will. So much to dive into here, but I guess we can just get into it with On Deck, which I think has just such a fascinating story. Anybody who's on Twitter and education Twitter has probably seen the name On Deck everywhere. It really feels like last summer they dominated my feed as well as a lot of other people in this space. And it really comes from their their new method of really scaling out these cohort-based courses. And in terms of the history of On Deck actually has been around for a lot longer than people would think. Eric Tornberg used to work at Product Hunt. And around 20, 2016 or so, he starts these founder dinners where he invites other people in San Francisco to come together and essentially just hang out and meet one another. And so this is what he's calling on deck. He runs this for a few years, brings in David Booth, who starts another chapter. I believe it was actually in in London and then eventually New York. But the London chapter was also quite thriving. And it wasn't until 2019 that they start their first kind of cohort, and they call it the fellowship, the Founders Fellowship. And the thesis here is essentially that most there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley that are looking to get involved with startups and looking for the next thing, but they don't essentially have a network. They don't have co-founders. They don't have people to work on projects with. 
And so the idea for On Deck, the fellowship, the first one, was to help people who were looking for what's next. And I actually have a friend who was in this very first cohort, and it was essentially, yeah, just it was meant to be for people who really hadn't started a company, but were looking to get involved. And it, it goes pretty well. It, as, as far as I know, it, it was a good network. It was a good program. Nothing game-changing at this time, but it laid the groundwork for what would come next. So they're running this fellowship in, in San Francisco. It's 2019, and they start expanding it. It's mostly just in San Francisco. They're looking to expand to New York. And then uh, almost a year later, COVID hits. And Eric talks about this on you know some of the podcast episodes that he's been on, but it was just a state of panic for the on deck team. They didn't know like a lot of other businesses. They didn't know if they could you know survive. They didn't know if people would pay for kind of a virtual experience, but they really had no choice. So they decide to launch their first virtual on deck fellowship, and to their surprise, it's an instant hit. Like, Will, I'm sure you remember those early days of the pandemic. People were just trying to figure out what to do. Like, I can't go outside. I can't go to bars. I know for me and some of my friends, we, we would organize virtual trivia nights. I'm curious to hear, what did your life look like at the start of the pandemic? Yeah, it, it was very centered on Zoom and the internet and work, really. And it's just funny because I started working remote at Forte Academy in January, 2020, I thought I was so cool. All my friends here in LA were still driving to work every morning. I was working in coffee shops, working at home. Thought it was the best thing ever. Two months later, it wasn't that cool anymore. Everybody was working from home. So yeah, I really turned fully to the virtual world, to our courses, did some of the board games over Zoom with my family, things like that to stay in touch. But yeah, it absolutely is the way things went. And I think the pandemic goes without saying has been uh, catastrophic on a whole host of different dimensions but there's no denying that uh, a crisis like that does create opportunity in new ways every crisis has the awful components and it creates uh, opportunity and certainly for the world of online education there's no doubt that has accelerated where things are at and you can look at that broadly but then i think you can look at on deck as a specific crystallization of that theme where as you mentioned they were focused on in person uh, events that was their leg where they had come from. And they're able to pivot very quickly to the point where just a year later, they have dozens of offerings. So it's really uh, interesting to hear about those early days, March, April, May of last year, 2020, when they were able to make that pivot and take advantage of the world that had just moved online. Yeah. And Will, it was a great move by On Deck because people really needed that community and that structure that they just felt like they didn't have. And a lot of people also had a lot of free time on their hands. And so they were looking to upskill and they were looking to programs like Building a Second Brain and On Deck for an opportunity to one, network with other people with similar interests, but also learn something new. And so it was interesting because On Deck sees this model working, sees an explosion of people joining their ODF, virtual ODF programs, and they decided to really scale it out. And so they start launching other on-deck platforms and courses. And it, it was actually a meme on Twitter for a while because they were launching a new fellowship like every single week. And it was, I think the key insight that they found that was the reason why this was working was they stumbled across this fact that like, hey, in college, you, you get to learn, but you get to learn alongside peers who are at the same stage as you and have a shared purpose for the duration of this program. And after you graduate, you lose that. 
And so they essentially wanted to create what they call kind of the Stanford for the internet or the Stanford for grownups, for people who want to keep learning, but want to do it in a social environment after they've graduated. And so they realized that, hey, like the, what people are really drawn to with the ODF program is this kind of shared learning experience throughout this cohort with people who are at the same stage. And why does that only have to apply for people who want to break into startups? And they start applying basically the same kind of cohort community-based learning to all these different verticals, podcasting, writing, performative speaking, which Robbie Crabtree, a friend of the show, has ran and then it got acquired by On Deck. And now if you go to their site, there's just so many community builders, On Deck Scale, On Deck Fintech Catalyst. It just, it goes on and on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really amazing how they are really offering two products in one because there's the Ostensibly, it's the course that you take, right? You want to uh, spin up that podcast you've always been thinking about. You want to start public speaking and improve your public speaking skill set. So that's on one level. But then you're also just by entering one of these fellowships, you're also entering this broader on deck ecosystem. It's just such a signal, right? I mean, uh, you see it in the people have it in their Twitter bios, people have it when uh, Clubhouse was really trendy, uh, especially earlier. Uh, this year, a lot of people were joining on deck rooms or joining the on deck clubs. And so it's this very high signal network that if you're on deck, you are tapping into the resources, not just of the course you're in, but also these dozens of other course offerings they have. They have because they've taken venture money, they have a certain scale where, for example, uh, I have friends who've taken on deck courses and seen their back end where you have your community environment for your course. But then that broader on-deck community environment, you can search the directory of on-deck and just see the thousand, I'm sure it's over a thousand plus different people who have taken an on-deck course and you have access to them. They're building this moat around talent. It's still the early days, but when Eric talks about the Stanford of the internet, it's having that very valuable brand that's a clear signal to others gives so much more impact to their courses because somebody's going to take a course and get, say, the five to eight weeks of learning, but then you also always have this label as I took an on-deck course and you feel like you have more of an entry point to others who have also taken on-deck courses. Two different levels of value they're delivering. Yeah, no. And Will, I know we talked about not going too in-depth with on-deck because we actually want to do a full episode about the history of on-deck, but one of the things that we're missing is actually how it plays out. So we have the story of its founding and them rolling out all these programs, but there's so much changing every single day. We want to you know, sit down with some of the people who've actually built the program and go pretty in depth. So we'll save that for a future episode. That being said, one of the reasons we also want to bring up On Deck is because one of the people who early on gets involved with On Deck and actually teaches a program is Gagan Biani. And this is the third time he's come up in this story, but it, he, Gagan talks about teaching through On Deck and it sparks an idea in his head. It sparks an idea that, hey, like this model really is working and we need more cohort-based courses. And where we left off, listeners, in the last episode was Gagan essentially starting Maven. Uh, Will, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, 100%. So the backstory, some more of the backstory there too, is uh, we'd mentioned Gagan had been co-founder at Udemy. I'd run a food services company in the mid-2010s in San Francisco. After that, took some time away, took 12 months away. And like you mentioned, was an instructor at On Deck. I was taking different cohort-based courses. He took Rite of Passage. And I understand was just learning about the online education space. Ends up partnering with Wes Cow, who's the co-founder of Alt MBA, who had built 
all MBA from the ground up with Seth Godin and had made her name for herself in the online education industry doing that. So the two of them got with the first engineer at Venmo, Shreyans, who is a very talented engineer, and they found Maven. And the principle behind Maven is that there are a lot of people who want to spin up a cohort-based course, right? They're seeing post-COVID, they're seeing this model get validated. They're seeing cohort-based course instructors having a lot of success, having a big impact on the students and also making uh, a solid stream of revenue at the same time. But not every person who has an audience and has the skill to deliver has the time, the energy, the capital to run a full-blown cohort-based course operation on their own. So deliver a good course, you often need to hire a staff and give weeks, if not months of your time to delivering, designing, launching, and delivering that course. And Maven's value proposition is twofold. Number one, they are supplying technology. They're building uh, technology to deliver forums and backend and things like that for cohort-based course creators. But right now, in the early days of Maven, their biggest value proposition is that they're delivering services where they can have different levels of service, but either to help you launch your course with some building blocks and some different best practices, all the way up to a white glove, full service, start to finish assistance with every step along the way of launching, building, and delivering your course. So they have started with very prominent folks in the Twitter sphere and creator economy, people like Anthony Pompliano, people like Lee Jean, people like Julian, Julian Shapiro, and they have built these courses with these prominent creators. And now my understanding is they have over a uh, hundred different course creators that they're working with to spin up CBCs. It's really just validating this category of educational opportunity, the cohort-based course, by getting very prominent people to build their own CBCs. And then also just the sheer volume of CBCs that they are helping give birth to throughout this year is going to have you know a big impact in the short term. We can talk about their long-term vision too, but just in the short term alone, a huge player in the CBC space. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think for full transparency, I think it's also worth mentioning, listeners, that there is Maven, but I personally run a company called Virtually, which in some ways could be seen as competitive to Maven. And I will try to be as objective as possible, but we are in a lot of ways serving a similar market in terms of serving people who want to build internet businesses and specifically education businesses. If you are in the space, I recommend looking at Maven, looking at virtually, and then deciding for yourself, which is the right solution. That being said... And I, and I will say, uh, as we all know, it's just a, the potential market for people for, for either virtually or Maven is growing tremendously quickly. It's worth mentioning that too. There's a lot of opportunity out there for a bunch of different players in this space. But, uh, but yeah, good. To, fair, fair enough to point that out. <laughs> yeah. And we actually do get clumped a lot. I get probably the number one thing when I talk to investors and other advisors is the comparison of Maven. And I think we do get clumped virtually and Maven do get clumped together quite a bit. That being said, it's early. It's very infantile, infantile days of this space. And I think as we progress, these companies and products will diverge quite a bit. It'll, we'll just have to see how it pans out. Yeah. But well, one point of divergence we could mention, if you want to look to the future, something we've heard Goggin talk about, which I believe is different from your vision, although I know that there's probably more vision that you have than you've shared publicly. And I'm sure on both sides, things can change quite quickly too. But I'll mention that we did a clubhouse show with Goggin a couple months uh, earlier this year, a couple months ago. And something he talked about on that show, which I had not heard him talk about before, was... Not only is Maven looking to deliver the tools and the services for folks to spin up cohort-based courses, but they also have this longer-term vision uh, of being a sort of decentralized institution 
four cohort-based courses, having where if a company wants to have their employees be trained on uh, a certain set of topics in communication, well, a company, a big company like, say, Deloitte or something, is not going to want to make a partnership with a single solopreneur creator. But if Maven has aggregated all of these different cohort-based courses, they can be a point of contact with a Deloitte or a big company and be a, a bridge to sell a bundle of different courses. So something I think is interesting to, to mention where that might be a divergence from what, what you all are focused on versus what they're focused on. It's just very interesting to hear Goggin share that vision, right? Because you hear Eric throw around, oh, we're going to be the Stanford of the internet. Any podcast you listen to, that's one of the first things Eric says. He stakes out this bold, clear, long-term vision. But it's very interesting for me on that Clubhouse interview to hear Goggin talk about that because that was something that I wasn't aware of. That was part of their vision. I thought they were just looking to build tools and services and there's this bigger picture element. So just worth mentioning. Yeah. And, and it is absolutely fascinating. And it's a big in line with kind of the future that we're seeing unfold right now, which I think is incredibly exciting, which is this general trend of decentralization. Whereas in, in right. right now, the way it is that when you get education, it's through these institutions, these colleges, these universities, and you're learning from these college professors who work for this institution. But when you graduate, what we're seeing people move more towards are these inde- independent small education businesses and relying on them to re-educate, rescale, upscale. And a big reason for that is because, honestly, I think it's the internet. The internet has increased the rate at which information is exchanged and in- industries are evolving so fast, colleges just can't keep up. And so actually, the best people to learn from are actually the people who are in these industries and day-to-day understand the nuances. And so that's why I, I really think that learning from these independent domain experts and having them build these micro schools around their niches is a trend that we're just going to see continue to explode. Obviously, we're seeing it with Forte Labs and what you guys are doing with Ship 30 for 30, On Deck, even boot camps is a part of that story as well, which we're going to talk about in a second. Yeah, you're, you're so right. This is the trend. This is the trend, decentralization. There's a book called The Sovereign Individual. It's something of a hidden gem among folks in the Silicon Valley, or so I've been told. And it's written in the mid to late 90s by two folks in the UK, charting out what the next 50 years are going to look like in the information age. And it's like they're writing at a time where they could still see the forest, right? Now it's like we're often lost in sort of these twigs and branches. But they had a line in that book in about 1996. They say, fundamentally, information technology miniaturizes and disaggregates. And that's true, say, 10 to 15 years ago, if you look at music and newspapers, things like that. But now we're seeing that same thing occurring in the education space. I think somebody else once said, I forget who, who said this, but somebody prominent said that all business is just a story of unbundling and rebundling, right? So there's a par- parallel there as well. But you're so right, Ish. It's, people are realizing there are ways to learn from people who are not just in these four-year institutions and been teaching for 20 years. And instead, you can learn from people who are boots on the ground in these different industries and are spinning up either courses on their own or in these sort of new age institutions we'll talk about in a moment, but it's a lot closer to the actual source of where you might be working or the skills you're learning, where they're going to be most relevant. You're not going from a college and trying to transfer that into the industry. You're actually going to folks in the industry already and learning directly 
from them. So it's a total trend, decentralization. There will be this rebundling like we talked about. It'll be perhaps more of a decentralized rebundling, sort of what Maven's vision is, but you're spot on. It's this trend of decentralization and it is just getting going. Education is a massive industry and there's a lot of room left for decentralization to occur. Yeah. Decentralization and another part that goes with this trend that I hinted at is this idea of continuous learning. I I think we were born with this notion that you have two phases of your life, education from the ages of zero to 22, and then work from the ages of 22 and beyond. And we're just seeing that doesn't work anymore. And we're going to see a future where it's just so much more intertwined. And so that you just, as you develop throughout your career, you continually need to reskill and upskill. And colleges have just not built the types of programs that really contribute to these rapid reskilling. Uh, and so right now, so far, up to this point, we've talked about these core-based courses, which a lot, I believe, really fall into this upskilling category, helping you become better at you know, what you already do, uh, or potentially even learning new skills. But industry we haven't touched on too much in this episode, we talked about a little bit in the last one, was boot camps. And that's just such a big part of the storyline for COVID because we talked about Austin and him starting Lambda School in the last episode and how that inspires a wave of other online education businesses and boot camps and ISA-backed programs. COVID-19 really accelerates this because by August of 2020, we had 55 million Americans filed for unemployment. And this is really tragic. But for these people, their industries were gone. Retail, hospitality, local businesses, they didn't have a place to go. And they needed reskilling. But for the first time, usually when there's an economic downturn, you see an uptick in enrollment in terms of institutions and, and grad schools. But we, as we've spoken with Michael B. Horn on the show, he had data to show that this wasn't happening for the first time in history because people are seeing that there's other options. These rapid reskilling programs, and I to prepare for this, we I was actually looking through the Career Karma State of the Bootcamp Market Report 2021, and they had some really interesting statistics. According to the 2019 World Economic Forum report, 54% of the workforce needs to be reskilled by 2022, which is just mind-boggling. <laughs> 2022, <laughs> give us some time. Yeah, give us some time. Unreal. On top of that. It turns out that this, the bootcamp market is really exploding in terms of helping fill the skills gap. And so we talked about Lambda School, some other kind of notable programs that are out there. Obviously, there's Flockche for tech sales, there's General Assembly, Galvanize, App Academy, really focused around tech right now. I'm, I'm actually excited to see this trend expand beyond tech. Within kind of the outcomes, for boot camps, there's actually some really staggering details. So one, 91% of graduates from its full-time career services accepted a job within 180 days of graduating. And I believe this was for General Assembly. In 2020, 44,254 people graduated or attended uh, boot camps, which was a 30% increase than in 2019. And the average boot camp cost just $11,000. Um, so you put these together, right? That like, hey, that this $11,000 price point, you see that 91% graduation rate and then accepting a job within the field of study, and already you're seeing disruption in the making, Will. Because again, 91% is astounding. Just to give you a little bit of context, people who graduate from college, only 27% of people 
even use the skills that they got in college that they majored in, in that first job out of college. And 50% are either unemployed or working a job that doesn't even require a college degree. So now we're seeing something that's, again, a fraction of the cost. Me, I came out of college with, I graduated a full year early, so I only did three years of undergrad and I paid $180,000 for those three years. <laughs> and, and yeah, here we're seeing the average cost of bootcamp is just $11,000. So a fraction, one eighteenth of that. And the graduate deplacement rate is astounding. And these are high paying careers. Like if you're landing a job in tech, you're making minimum $75,000, but a lot of people making something in the six figures as well. Yeah. It's, it, there's no doubt that the, the current model, the market that boot camps are, ser- boot camps are serving, it's working, uh, right? Like you're saying, 91% job placement at that price point. And so I think the interesting question looking ahead is, like you said, can these expand to other industries in a meaningful way outside of coding? That's number one. And then number two, can it expand beyond what it's largely serving now is people earlier in their careers making to looking to make the leap into coding. Can it serve people in this reskilling and upskilling across their entire lifetime? So that's Michael B. Horn, who we had on the uh, Clubhouse show, I guess technically it was the Twitter Spaces show, uh, as well has outlined these different paths for how it's different scenarios for what boot camps could look like going forward, how much they can really disrupt these traditional institutions we've been talking about and his sort of best case rosiest scenarios, what he calls a mega disruption where boot camps not only go beyond teaching people coding and programming skills, but it also expands to serve students throughout their entire lives. So beyond the sort of 20 to 30 somethings that they're largely serving right now. So really fascinating to watch the space and see if that's where things go from here. But there's no doubt. We talk about, I guess, the, what do you call it, the bootcamp revolution or something of 2011, 2012. We had conversations, we've had conversations with folks who were there in the early days. We talked to Jesse Farmer. I know we have an episode coming out with him. And we've talked to David Yang from Full Stack Academy, David Phillip from Hackbright. We've talked to these people who were there in the early days of this bootcamp revolution nine, 10 years ago. And the model for coding bootcamps has been very validated. And then the question is, can they expand in these other ways? And also, can they overcome what I've called the norms gap? But that's, you're at the Christmas cocktail party and parents are talking about what their kids are up to. And a lot of kids graduate from college and are working at a marketing or sales job, what have you. And then somebody else is saying that their kid did a boot camp and is on this whole different path. Is that something that can become more normalized. Because I think it's still a pretty unusual move. It's maybe normalized among people in tech, but certainly if it's going to replace higher education institutions, there's norms gap that boot camps have to come over. So a few open questions, right? In terms of other industries, lifelong learning, and these norms gap. Very interesting to watch the space and see where boot camps go from here. Yes. And, and Will, I think one of the reasons that I'm also seeing a rise of this industry, or at least my hypothesis, is also how they're a lot more flexible to your life. I think one of the things that's been a barrier to entry with graduate schools is you have to put your life on pause. You have to stop, you have to quit your job and potentially move halfway across the world and enroll in this program for two, sometimes four or five years. There's a big opportunity cost compared to something like a bootcamp, which often anywhere from 10 weeks like Flockshay all the way up to nine months like Lambda School. And you can do this completely online for the com- from the comfort of your home, and you can land a high-paying job in technology. And, and so again, the question really that's still on the table is, can this really expand beyond tech? And it might not, 
I think actually this bootcamp model might really stay in technology. But for these other non-tech industries, I, I actually think we'll start to see kind of cohort-based courses fill that gap where you, you need to get, you say you're already in in a career path where you just need now to learn to become a manager. You've been an IC the entirety of your career. Maybe you'll enroll in a cohort-based course like Alt-MBA that helps you learn leadership skills in a matter of four weeks. And it's not a full-time program, but it's training, it's reskilling, it's upskilling in that kind of same you know, format. And it's also, again, a lot less disruptive to your life. At risk of oversimplifying, do you think we can say that, generally speaking, cohort-based courses are best for upskilling, whereas boot camps are more this dramatic reskilling where you're going from zero to 60, you never wrote a line of code in your life, and then you join Lambda School nine months later, you're working as a frontline developer versus a cohort-based course. The, the suite of courses we just talked about on deck, the courses Maven's offering, the courses we offer at Forte Academy, those can be thought of, generally speaking, broadly speaking, as upskilling, taking somebody who uh, has had some degree of say they've been in sales, but they want to start doing public presentations and uh, get a higher paying job giving giving speeches for the marketing department. They can take Robbie Crabtree's performative speaking upskilled to that level and have that new skill set where they can then go maybe do some YouTube or do some speaking on their own and then have a better job opportunity because they've trained themselves in public speaking. And because it's upskilling and not this dramatic reskilling, you can take Robbie's course over five or six weeks, pay a few thousand dollars. And there's your upskill versus the bootcamp, which is less disruptive than a four-year degree or grad school, no question. But it's still at least a couple months, if not up to nine, 10 months. So it's interesting the different ways you can parse this out and think about CBCs and upskilling versus bootcamps and reskilling. I don't think you're oversimplifying. In fact, I'm smiling because this was an exact tweet I had just a couple of weeks ago where I talked about <laughs> upskilling that. versus reskilling. And I thought that I, I called out that I said boot camps are for reskilling, court based courses are for upskilling. So we're hundred percent aligned there, and I'm glad we get to the same conclusion there. That's really funny. Yeah, no, it's, it makes a lot of sense serving different needs, both uh, both of them. Yeah. Well, Will, I think we're at the end of history. We're at modern day now. We are in June 2021. Did it? And so it, I think this would be a great opportunity to just stop and reflect on kind of the themes we've seen across the kind of the three episodes. And then also the future that we're excited for next. Sure. Yeah. Well, the first one we already have spoken about quite at length here, but it's the decentralization is one. But then I think also the personalization of the educational experience. Obviously, the 1.0 with courses that you're either taking through MOOCs on Coursera with 10,000 people or out-of-the-box courses on, on Udemy. They're impersonal, did not necessarily deliver results at, as, a, as a result of being impersonal, did not necessarily deliver the impact that they promised. And you've seen this move to uh, a lot more personalized experiences, live time-bound courses. So without question, that's one, just the personalization of education. I think that will continue, by the way, just a way to think about this trend going forward. Something we think about with our courses is that, okay, you have rite of passage, a couple hundred students. It's a pretty personalized experience. You get to meet mentors, talk in small groups. You get to talk to the instructor in Q&As one-on-one. But how can we personalize the courses even more so. Use data that we collect through surveys and data we're collecting throughout the cohort to then deliver uh, specific materials, specific groups, specific connections to students. So even making those cohort-based courses more personalized. So I think that's the way to look 
forward and how courses will become more personalized and more catered to individuals. So I think that's one theme uh, we can certainly look to from, say, Education 1.0 to where we are today. No, I love that. And it's it has been the big gap that we've seen in online education, right? This idea of like single player to multiplayer. And the reason it's working is I think it's just this need for community after you've left college. Like we really love college because of all these unique shared experiences we have. It's like you have these people who are at the same life stage as you and you get to progress together. And we just, you don't have an equivalent of that really outside of college. And so it gives people who want to learn the ability to do so in a really social environment. And so I've, I'm a cohort-based course addict because now this is my, my, the fourth program that I'm wrapping up right now, Building a Second Brain. Also, I've gone through YC and On Deck Scale as well as Ship 30 for 30. And I just see it, how much joy these programs bring to people who haven't been able to build these communities, especially with COVID when you're stuck at home and you can't really socialize with the people uh, closest to you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm smiling because this goes hand in hand with the personalization, but it's also the personal relationships you build in these courses. It's a huge component of it. And it's not... We don't talk about it in our marketing hardly at all. We talk about the value you'll get, the you know challenges you might be facing, and how our course can, courses can help deliver value. But that's really what you. It's almost like you come for the content, stay for the community, and the transformational growth that comes in the context of community. Two examples quickly I'll point to from our courses. One we've started doing with Second Brain happy hour sessions every Friday. So we use a, a very innovative platform called Gather Round, where it's a bit whimsical, there's music, and there's these rooms where you can chat about topics that have nothing to do with second brain or personal knowledge management. And we've had people, I run these sessions on Fridays and students will sort of in the chat or to our team afterwards saying, some people, this is their favorite part of building a second brain, which we spun up this happy hour on Fridays and afterthought, like, hey, let's just give people another way to meet each other. And not everybody attends. It's a smaller subset of the larger course, but people join those sessions and find real connections. We had two people who both live in uh, the Netherlands and they're going to go sailing because they met in one of these silly seven minute rooms where you're talking about your hidden talents or your favorite foods. Another woman was speaking with her partner, found out her partner was an author. And then she had that woman's book in her room. This lady, Deborah, was a children's book author and her partner had Deborah's book on her shelf that she used to read to her child at night. So these little human connections that happen that really make the learning experience rich. There's just hundreds of those types of connections happening in, in CBCs each week. And then the other thing, I'll just point to a specific example. So somebody who... We have a student named Bob and he is certainly on the older end of the spectrum of our students. He tragically lost his wife early, about 15 months ago. Didn't have to do with COVID, but his wife passed away. And he has shared with us that he has found real community. He's taken all of our courses. He comes back for for multiple rounds. And he lives uh, in a pretty remote part of the United States and has been able to find connection with others just through these virtual environments. So yeah, community is hugely important, making learning sticky and delivering the impact, but also those specific anecdotes where people find these unique connections and people who may not have any other source of connection can find that warmth of human spirit through these online courses. So it really has been fun to watch that flourish in the online space. Yeah. And I hope listeners were not getting a little too meta and philosophical, but I think one of the amazing things is that you really can find 
deeper connection sometimes in a virtual environment because you can find people that again like wouldn't exist normally in in your regular community and and let me dissect that a little bit i i actually ran my own cohort based course called creator school this was before the days of virtually really and it, it, i built it up to a profitable business and one of the most amazing things about running creator school it was all about helping people uh, become content creators and i had a network of creators that i had built as friends who i came and had them teach teach the program was that they found bonding in shared trauma almost it was like everybody else there understood the struggle of being a creator whereas no one in their regular day life did and so that is really interesting is that a lot of these cohort-based courses bring together people who have a common Mm. problem and are basically trying to solve it together. And it, the, I'm so excited to see basically these cohort-based courses emerge for every stage of your life. I mean, we're yeah. talking about like productivity and writing right now, but I can't wait for like parenting. Like, hey, like you're a first-time parent. This is, these are the things you should know or learning to sail or learning to get started with, I don't know, wood woodwork or, or just painting, water watercolor painting. It just, the niches are endless. I'm glad you bring that up because it even helps me expand my thinking. We get, personally, I get centered on this Twitter sphere, creator economy type of, type of courses. That's what we know best. But there are so many other areas in which this model of education can spread. I'm glad you brought up the thing about having kids and raising kids, Tiago, a founder of Building a Second Brain, who I work with, his wife uh, gave birth to their first son last fall. And his wife, Lauren, was in a cohort-based course. You could technically call it that, but it was a group of seven women who were pregnant and in the final few months of their pregnancy would meet virtually and talk about what they were uh, dealing with in a very practical level to get ready for the birth of their children, but also on a very emotional level, what it feels like to be, you know, first time mother and just processing that with people around different parts of the country, but such a different format, right? Just seven women getting together uh, on Zoom in a weekly format. And yet that's still in a weird way, a cohort based course. So I think it helps to have a more expansive definition of what CBCs can even be. And they may not be all chasing the scale of the uh, on-deck programs of the world or these courses that may have 10,000 people in them one day, but those small courses or those, those super niche courses can be just as impactful, if not more so, for the people who are in them. Yeah. And that, that niche concept, it really ties into this other trend that I'm seeing is this hyper-specialization. So again, some of these cohort-based courses are really niche right? Like our, our good friend, Kay, he runs a course on supercharger productivity all about Notion. It's a productivity software and, and there's so many tools out there, but he's able to build an entire online business around helping people better use this one productivity software. And it's because markets, I guess, niches that really wouldn't have a market in person, the internet allows for there to form a marketplace. And so the one of the really cool things is we're going to see the craziest hyper-specialization for the most niche topics, which is actually going to increase the rate at which information is exchanged throughout the world. Education is just going to naturally, because of naturally when you have virtual education, border is never a barrier. Like I'm sure you guys have your global audience is just so, such a big part of your student uh, demographics. And it's just because 
And a side effect of that is you just get this diverse perspective. And so we're going to see hyper-specialization and we're going to see a rapid exchange of information and growth in, in, in our societies, governments. No doubt. A great uh, line from Ben Thompson of Stratechery. He's a principal of the internet. He says, when you talk about the internet, when you think about the internet, you can't think in terms of percentages. You have to think in terms of absolutes. So what does this mean for a course creator? Well, it means that if you have some sort of skill and it can be a really hyper-specific skill. I mean, you mentioned being really skilled with Notion. The absolute percentage of internet users who are interested in that is pretty darn low, but the, ab- or the, the percentage is pretty darn low, but the absolute number of people interested in it, well, it's enough for Kay to run an extremely profitable business and hire a whole team and support his family doing you know, that course. And there's other examples too, right? You can just pick some hyper-niche, hyper-specialized topic. There's a guy who took Rite of Passage who created a course for supply chain management. But imagine even if you had some particular flavor of supply chain management, like, I don't know, consumer packaged uh, goods that are serving this particular uh, part of the country with a particular set of sources from like only from Japan. Some like, I don't know, consumer packaged goods from Japan. But anyways, if there's some hyper niche group uh, market like that, CBC could still potentially even serve that market because it's not about the percentage of people who are interested in it, it's the absolute. And with the internet, you could still find 25, 50, 100 or more people who that is exactly what they're looking for. And that's the most valuable education experience they could have. And pre-internet obviously never could be viable to have uh, that type of educational training program. But with the internet, like you said, we're just going to see hundreds, thousands of these cropping up in over the decade, right? It's so easy to forget this is the early days. We're not even in the early days yet. Lots to come on that hyper-specialization front. Really good point-ish. Amazing. And what a great place to wrap up our epic saga of the history of online education. Listeners, I really appreciate it. We really appreciate it if you've stuck it through these three episodes. It's been a hell of a way to kick off season two, and I'm so grateful for Will officially coming and joining as the co-host for Reshaping Education. With that, Listeners, this is Ish and Will signing off. Hey, Ish here. If you enjoyed that episode, Will and I would love for you to leave a review and to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. It really helps get the word out. If you want to keep up when new episodes drop, head on over to reshapingeducationpodcast.com or give Will and I a follow on Twitter. All the links will be in the show notes. With that, this is Ish and Will, signing off.